there's this kind of trickle-down effect of, of climate change to malnutrition, to economic status, to development. And so when you're thinking about these smallholder farmers, now they have less, and now they're able to sell less as well, so they have less income. And now they're making tough choices between purchasing more nutritious foods versus non-nutritious foods, or sending their daughter to school versus their son to school. Our natural world inspires and shapes us, so it's more critical than ever that we work to protect it. I'm Alex Honnold, professional rock climber and founder of the Honnold Foundation, and this is Planet Visionaries. As a climber, I've been fortunate enough to see both the beauty and fragility of our planet. That's why I'm proud to be joining Rolex and the Washington Post Creative Group to bring you stories of inspiring people who are helping solve some of the most important conservation issues that we face today. On this episode, I get to speak with Felix Brooks Church, a social entrepreneur working to eradicate malnutrition in Tanzania. Hi, Felix. Thanks for chatting with us today. Hey, Alex. Thanks. Good to be here. So what is your company and and what do you do for work? So my company is called Sanku. Essentially, we are addressing what's called hidden hunger. It's not starvation. It's people consuming enough food, but not consuming enough nutrients. So literally starving from the lack of vitamins and minerals that we need to survive, thrive, be healthy and strong. We've invented a machine that attaches to those small food producers, for example, a flour mill in a village, it automates the addition of these nutrients into that food, giving children, women of reproductive age, the entire population, essentially those key vitamins and nutrients, those basic human rights that we take for granted here in the quote-unquote developed world, we're bringing that to the local level in those communities. So how did you get interested in uh, micronutrient deficiency? It's not an obvious track. You know, how did you wind up on that track? I've always wanted to get into work that, that gave back. And I think that I got that essentially from growing up all over the world and living in those communities and recognizing that privilege that I was given that others weren't and, and kind of giving back for that for that reason. And so I think it was 2006, I was aware of an opportunity to, to help a friend of my mother who opened this project in Cambodia. I moved out there for four months to volunteer And I ended up staying four years. I just fell in love with the work, grew the project, working with 100 kids, working with the community, working with the government, working with the school systems. And so I got a a kind of a taste and a touch of all these, quote unquote, development work opportunities. That's the first, I guess, introduction to malnutrition. Some of these children, a lot of the children that come in, they would say they're 12 or 13 years old. They look like they're seven or eight years old. There was a physical stunting to them because of the lack of nutrients that they they had. So that's when I started to realize that I was getting to these children too late. Everything that we're doing, whether it was computer classes or English classes or general education, for me, it was a bit of a band-aid because not only was there physical stunting, but there was also cognitive development issues. It's really interesting that you were working with the young kids and yet you still realized that they were already too old, that you had to start even younger. You really do have to start at the beginning. Almost women of reproductive age, mothers before they have children, that's that's almost as early as you have to get to it. And, and the first thousand days of a, of a child's life is so critical for good nutrition, for good development. It all really starts in that window. For me, um, I wanted to get to them again before it was not too late, but be, where, where you really have an opportunity to have a big impact. In those first thousand days, working with mothers, zinc, folic acid, all these great, really life improvers, health improvers that we all need, the majority of the population just doesn't have access to that basic human right. 
honestly, hearing you talk about the first thousand days kind of stresses me out because we have a, a six month old right now. And I'm like, are we feeding her the right things? Is this, you know, <laughs> like, I don't know. We, we just had a baby and I'm like, I have no idea. We just, uh, just started trying to give her solid foods and yeah, which yeah. is pretty exciting from like, yeah. oh, are they the right foods? Who knows? You know, exactly. I'm like, oh, geez. Yeah, exactly. Once you become a parent, you become obsessed with food, right? It's like, it's like, like so your one job, am I feeding my child the right things, enough of the right things? Um, and it's funny that I fell into this work of nutrition and never truly appreciated it until I had two children. Now we take zinc and, and vitamin A and, and B12 and iron, all these key things every single day we put in our children's food. And that's exactly what we're doing in the work that I do with my organization in East Africa. We're adding nutrients into the staple foods that people eat, uh, specifically maize flour. Can you explain the stakes of malnutrition or hidden hunger? Like how many people are affected by malnutrition and what does that do exactly? I mean, I think because normally when we think about hunger, we just think about people literally starving. But what, a, what does that gray area in between look like? Well, starvation obviously is a huge contributor to, to malnutrition. But when you're talking about numbers of people suffering from micronutrient deficiencies, it's 2 billion people globally. That starchy, basic maize or corn flour that, that the majority of people in East Africa eat because it's, it's a robust plant that grows everywhere. Yes, it fills your belly, right? But you're still starving. That's why it's called hidden hunger because you're starving from those nutrients. So low levels of iron, folic acid, B12, zinc, all these things means that there is physical stunting. There's cognitive development issues. A malnourished child, especially in those first thousand days, has a weak immune system, very susceptible to preventable disease. Diarrhea is a big killer. Malaria is a big killer. So our work is super critical. Since first bringing their invention to Tanzania, Felix and his team have reached millions of malnourished people. Can you explain what exactly you guys developed? Like, how does the device get built? The device gets built by collaborating with really smart people. And so one very smart person is my co-founder and my partner, the chairman of, of Sanku Board, David Dotson. First, I'll start with why we invented it. So whether you're in, in the US, uh, Europe, where I am in Australia, you walk down any supermarket and the staple foods, the sugars, the oils, the flours, uh, the salts, they've all been what you call fortified, meaning they've been strengthened literally with added nutrients vitamins and minerals. They've been fortified and they've been fortified by law. The countries have passed laws to fortify these foods because it's so important that we get those extra nutrients. But in places like East Africa, the majority of the population doesn't buy these staple foods from supermarkets. They buy from local mills. So this industrialization and centralized food processing system that exists in the quote unquote developed world doesn't extend to the majority of the population in these communities. And these communities are arguably most at risk of malnutrition, of micronutrient deficiencies, right? And so what we did was, okay, how can we bring that proven science of industrial fortification of adding nutrients to staple foods down to the village level? So we built a machine, just like these large mills have this large micro doser. We've, we micro built that into something that was literally small enough to strap on the back of a bicycle, drive it to a local flour mill in a local village, strap it onto that mill, and it automates the addition of key nutrients in a powdered form. We add this powdered form of iron, folic acid, B12, zinc, again, the building blocks that we need. And then this machine now automates the addition of that into the staple food that everybody eats. Mothers come, they buy fortified flour, take it home, feed their children, they get the nutrients they need. 
any of these nutrients that we do add to the flour, it's super important that it doesn't change the color, the look, the taste, the smell. It's basically invisible, right? And so whether you're eating fortified flour or unfortified flour, it tastes the same. Can you explain the basic diet for, for folks living in Tanzania? Because I, I mean, I think for for somebody like me who's grown up in you know suburban U.S., I think of hunger as either not having access to food or, you know, you occasionally hear about food deserts in the U.S. and things where you lack access to nutritious food. But, you know, you really have to go somewhere like Tanzania, though, to, to experience what you're describing where you're eating basically the same thing for every meal all the time. The cash crop it grows everywhere is maize, corn um, throughout East Africa, especially Tanzania. And then they grind it up into a powdered form and then they boil it with, with water to create a porridge. And it's called ugali. And so it's it's basically like a, a polenta, I guess. That's the common thing that I can equate it to. So so they have a big bowl of this white ugali, which is a porridge that gets a bit stiff. And they use that to um, dip into other little sauces, or maybe they have a little bit of chicken or a little bit of veg on the side. But the majority, the vast majority of that plate is this massive ball of white ugali. Uh, again, they're workers, it fills their belly, uh, they get their carbohydrates, they get their energy, uh, but they don't get a lot of other things, right? They don't get a lot of other nutrients. So what that does is, is obviously create this micronutrient deficiency. Have people been receptive to the idea? Like, you know, when when you first brought your invention in Tanzania, were people into it? I mean, are the millers into it? Like, how, how easy is it to adopt this new technology? Yeah, so USAID in Tanzania had gotten wind of our work and invited me to Tanzania back in 2012. And within a few months, um, was in front of the president of Tanzania. And I was showing him the machine and he thought it was pretty cool. And eventually at the end of our short conversation, which lasted probably five or 10 minutes, he said, can you put one of these machines in every village in Tanzania? And I said, yeah, of course I can. We definitely have, have lived up to that promise. We have 700 machines out there reaching 3 million people. The president has visited us again to kind of check in on us. So it's definitely moving in the right direction. Tanzania is a country of 60 million people and probably one third of those people is, is reachable definitely at risk that we should be reaching. So we're at three, 3 million right now on our way to 20 million in the next couple of years. So definitely moving in the right direction. We're about to reach our 1,000th mill feeding 3 million people. But yeah, our ultimate goal is 100 million people. Uh, we're confident we'll get there probably within the next five to 10 years. That's amazing. Could you talk about how climate change is affecting your work or how it's affecting you know, nutrition more broadly? I'm seeing firsthand the effects of climate change in East Africa. Maize is always seasonal, so you have your harvest once or maybe twice a year. But I've seen scarcities definitely recently where it's just not available and, and the limited maize that is available is too costly. The other thing that, that climate change affects is it not only makes less abundant crops, but it makes less nutritious crops. And so when you're thinking about these smallholder farmers, they're relying on not only producing these crops to sell, but also to consume. Now they have less and now they're able to sell less as well. So they have less income. And now they're making tough choices between purchasing more nutritious foods versus non-nutritious foods or sending their daughter to school versus their son to school. So there's, there's this kind of trickle down effect of, of climate change to malnutrition, to economic status, to development uh, entirely. Felix and his team hope to continue expanding the use of their technology to reach even more communities in need. You received the Rolex Awards for Enterprise in 2021. How, how did that feel? 
That was an amazing honor. If you just look at the legacy of Rolex and the legacy of this award, they're all about accuracy and class and integrity. And those are really the values that as an organization, before we, we got the award was integrity, accuracy, right? We build a machine that is literally dosing life-saving nutrients. A lot of people don't know what we do. They don't know about the 2 billion people suffering from hidden hunger. And so Rolex has allowed us to really tell the story of this huge problem to, the, to a wider global audience. And what will uh, winning the Rolex Awards for Enterprise do for the work? When we won the award for Enterprise, it came at a perfect time. We were considering expanding out of Tanzania. To reach 100 million people, you're not going to reach it in one country alone. Not only that, we wanted to see if we could replicate our model in another geographic setting in another country, literally. And so will the technology work? Will the business model work? Can we hire? Can we, can we afford to do business? And so when we won the award, that enabled us to expand over the border from Tanzania into Kenya. And that was about uh, a year ago. And now we have 12, 13 staff. We have a, a pipeline of, I think, 80, 81 millers. The government gave us the blessing to, to kind of step on the gas. Uh, and so we're really now looking forward to this coming year in a great position, not only to continue to scale throughout Tanzania, reaching three, four or five million people more. Now we have a chance, this huge market in Kenya, which I believe is a population of close to 50 million people. That's amazing. And so have you managed to connect with any of the other Rolex laureates? We have had some initial discussions, for example, with one of the laureates, Hindu Amaro Ibrahim. She works in Chad. She has a mapping project, basically mapping out communities, water sources, livestock, and all these things. And in these areas, there are also local mills that produce the staple food. So there's definitely an opportunity for our solution to come to Chad to bring this basic human right to these communities that require it. One of the other laureates is actually from Nepal as well. Is the Nepalese laureate Rinzen Fuzak Lama? Yes, exactly. So I, I spoke to him recently. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's awesome. And I mean, I could see how the, the projects could certainly go together. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's working in the most remote corners of Nepal. It's like, surely there's an opportunity for, for fortification there. Well, yeah. I mean, the more remote you get, likely you're going to have micronutrient deficiencies, right? There's going to be less access to the colorful things on your plate through just being so remote. So our work belongs, unfortunately, everywhere. There's an opportunity to, to help. Felix is inspired by the vision of nutritious food as a human right, and that drives the future of his work. What are your hopes for the work? Our vision is to guarantee that every meal consumed by every mother and child contains these life-saving nutrients. And beyond that, we see us enabling these millers to deliver a basic human right. And that's what really gets me excited. It gets me passionate about this work is that there are basic human rights that, that we should have, in light, shelter, food, in our case, nutritious food. And, and yet 2 billion people do not have access to that. So not only are we bringing better food to these communities, enabling them to grow up healthy and smart, but we're really ensuring a basic human right. I want to get thousands of machines out there. I want to reach hundreds of millions of people with fortified flour. But also, and, and this is what's so great about partnering with somebody like Rolex, I want to get this story out there. I want everybody to know, and, and this opportunity speaking to you today is to be able to get the word out about this issue, about this solution, tell the story about why this is happening, get people involved or get people at least educated around this, uh, this issue. So what advice would you give to the average person on, on how they can help keep the planet perpetual? Through knowledge, knowing what the issues are to reduce your carbon footprint, whether it's through recycling, whether it's through volunteering, whether it's whatever it might be. But there are ways to get involved. There are ways to educate yourselves. Get involved, educate yourself, and definitely support organizations like ours and others. 
That was social entrepreneur Felix Brooks Church. I'm Alex Honnold. Thanks for listening to Planet Visionaries. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, and leave a review to help other listeners find it. On the next episode, I'll be joined by Hindu Umru Ibrahim, a geographer helping to prevent climate conflict in Chad. And if you liked this episode, check out Season 1, Episode 7, where we spoke with Miranda Wang, a scientist using innovative chemistry to upcycle plastics. Thanks for listening, and be sure to check out the next generation of environmental innovators at Rolex.org. Thank you.